1: a welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Friday, September 17th, 2021. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with me, and we thank you for that here on Real Vision. I am your host, Dion Roboen, and with me today is the original gangster himself, Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. Jim, thanks so much for being with us here on Real Vision.
2: Oh, thanks. I didn't know I was an OG, but I'll take it.
1: I'm a, hey, you know what? That's how you know you're an OG when you don't know you're an OG. I think that's, that's I what guess. they always say, right? Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> Jim, you know, we're we're looking at, we're going to talk a lot of things. We're going to talk what's going on with Evergrande. We're going to talk a little crypto. We're going to talk about some of these economic reports that we've seen the past couple of days. But I want to jump into the market action today, what we saw in the markets. And, you know, stocks are down. Again, I think we're down seven of the past nine sessions. But when I talked to you before we jumped on today, the thing you wanted to talk about was bonds and what's going on in the Treasury market. So what's caught your eye right there?
2: Yeah, interest rates all of a sudden have stopped going down. They bottomed out at 112 in late July and then in early August, and now we're back near the high end of the range. The 10-year yield, as I look at my screen right now, is around 137, which is right at the top of that recent range that we've been in. But now it's occurring with the stock market being a little wobbly. As you mentioned, we're down seven in the last nine sections. We're total and total down about 2.2%, 2.3%. So it hasn't morphed itself, maybe the word is yet, into something significant. But normally, when the stock market gets a little bit wobbly, bonds would catch a bid and you'd see yields falling. And we're not seeing that right now. Maybe I'm speaking hmm. a little early. Give it another week or two and we'll see how things shake out. But if we were to break through to the upper end of that range next week, look, we're only three four basis points away now from doing that. And you see a solid 140-ish handle on the 10-year yield, I think that the narrative could be on the verge of changing from transitory inflation and stronger uh, and weaker growth to potentially some stronger growth and more persistent inflation, stronger growth coming from the idea that the Delta variant and COVID cases seem to have peaked in the U.S. and they seem to be receding Mm -hmm. at least a little bit right now. But normally in biology, when something turns, you know, it doesn't do an oversold bounce like markets. It keeps going, so that's why yeah. I think a lot of people and got hopeful that it will fall.
1: Real quick, Jim, I want to ask you how much of that thesis is based on that retail sales report we got this week, and how much of that is based on? I mean, what's what's got you thinking about that?
2: Um, not much, because I suspect that what you've seen in the second in the in the second quarter or in the third quarter, excuse me, in August and September is a bunch of weak data. Look, uh, the, the, the payroll report was weak. The retail sales numbers weren't weak. The GDP numbers are coming down uh, as well, too. I'm thinking ahead to October's numbers, November's numbers. If we were to see the Delta variant come down, and if we were to see some more reopening in the economy as we move forward from here, and you were to see a little bit higher bond yields, I do think the narrative could change. So, no, I'm not basing it on the data that we've seen yet. As a matter of fact, if you want to go one step further, I wouldn't be surprised if the September payroll report is, winds up being a little bit weak, too, because you still have the effects of Hurricane Ida in New Orleans. You still have the effects of the hurricane that made landfall this week in Texas that would probably retard jobs. Because, remember, this is the survey week. They call your company this week, and they ask, How many people are you employing? And if you don't answer the phone, they put you down for zero. They'll pick up when you. You might go back next month and tell them that you're all employed. This month you go down to zero and that's how it could depress the numbers.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I want to let everyone know. You know, if you've got questions for Jim, uh, be sure and drop those on the exchange. That's Real Vision's social media platform. That's the exchange. Be sure and send your questions there, and we'll get those asked to Jim. Um, so stepping back into the arena, Jim, as you're watching the stock market, you mentioned it, but I-, I want to dig down a little bit here. Down seven of the past nine days, we're seeing bond yields start to rise and elevate. As you look at the stock market, are you starting to get a little worried, or or is this something that, you know, uh, it's just September, it's normally a weak month? What are your thoughts?
2: You know, a little bit of a mixed bag, but I would argue probably not worried. Yes, we've gone 200-plus days without a 5% correction. That's the second longest period in 25 years. The longest was 400 days in 2018, which ended, for those of you that are real nerds in the market, it ended with the Volmageddon episode in February of 2018. Uh, as well, too. So that gets you a little bit nervous when the market gets that extended. That you know you might be vulnerable um, to some kind of pullback. But then again, it's been ten days. The all-time high was September second. We're not even 25 percent off the high yet. Markets go up. Markets go down. So for the moment, I don't think it's anything to be particularly concerned about. And the other thing I see in the data is if you look at the reopening stocks, the has seen, I'm um, sorry, uh, restaurants, the cruise ship operators, the hotels, the lo- those like, they're starting to kind of catch a bid a little bit in the last couple of weeks as the market has been turning down, you know, consistent with this idea that Delta may have, have, have peaked. And uh, by the way, they correlate very well the relative performance of the reopening stocks to the bond market. So if we do get a reopening mm-hmm. bid in the market, we should also see higher rates.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. You know, you say you're not concerned. I think one thing that's sent some ripples of concern through the markets and through some folks, you know, who have been kind of on the outside looking in, who haven't really watched China that closely, is this Evergrande situation and the bond situation, the possibility of default over there and and China broadly. I want to bring in and I want to play this clip that we've got from Real Vision CEO Rao Powell interviewing James Aiken of Aiken Advisors. And and James is going to talk through what he sees and what he sees going on in terms of Evergrande and in terms of this overall China, excuse me, in terms of this overall China situation broadly, but more specifically, what this means for the market overall. So this is James Aitken of Aitken Advisors talking with Rao Powell.
3: Evergrande's been pending for two and a half to three years not just because it's a huge dollar borrower, but because it's been clear for three years that these guys had an issue. And I think it was two and a half years ago, the then they issued a two-year dollar bond at 11.5%. Now, for someone with that much dollar debt to be rolling two-year dollar paper at 11.5%, 50% of which, Raul, was bought by the chairman, you know, <laughs> There's a bit of a tip-off that these guys have a few issues. At various times over the past, say, five or six years, many of us have raised concerns about a potential dollar funding crisis in China, rollover risk, and all these sorts of things. And these are good questions to raise, but, again, it hasn't happened. But as a result of what I think of as most unfortunate, automatic, ongoing, massive, passive inflow, into Remnimby assets. Because of the MSCI change and the other ones, yeah. Guess what, mate? The foreign currency deposits in the Chinese financial system, onshore, record high. Record high. And I was like, maybe that's it. As absurd as it seems to any of us who experienced Lehman, you know, you're really trying to push a very leveraged borrower with something like 340 odd billion of bonds that they're gonna struggle to refinance. You're gonna push them over and nothing's happening. Is part of the answer that why there's no contagion? Because the Chinese financial system right now has never been more awash in dollar liquidity onshore.
1: And that was James Aiken talking with Raoul, or excuse me, James Aiken of Aiken Advisors talking with Real Vision CEO, Raoul Pal. Jim, I want to step back and get your thoughts on this this whole Evergrande situation and about what James had to say there.
2: First of all, let me say I'm a big fan of James. Uh, Bill Fleckenstein nicknamed him the Lord of the Dark Matter. And if there's anybody (laughs) that understands the plumbing of the financial markets, it's James. If James can't figure it out, we're all in deep trouble. Let's just put it that Mm -hmm. way. Uh, But now that I've said that, the Evergrande bonds are already trading in the 20s right now. Whatever damage that emigrant is going to cause to the financial system, and I'm talking about outside of China now, it's already occurred. It's already in the past at this point. If there was going to be a knock-on effect because somebody was overleveraged and those bonds caused too many losses, I think we would have seen it already right now. Now, I'm separating this from China. We'll talk about that in a second. So I, Mm I think that the contagion of this is going to be somewhat contained within the West. And I'm going to liken it to the Archegos situation, a leverage hedge fund that blew up earlier this year. And a lot of people thought that that would lead to some kind of a contagion effect. And it largely did not. It was basically isolated to them and to the immediate borrowers of them, but it didn't go much beyond that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just for those who don't know, know, if you don't follow the bond market closely, in particular, particularly emerging markets bonds, when you hit that 29, really under 30 level, that basically is the bond market saying, hey, this thing's going to default. We're already trading it as if it's going to default, and that's likely what's going to happen. So that's why that, that level is so vitally important when you're watching bond markets and particularly emerging market bonds.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's libsyn dot com.
1: Uh, so, Jim, talk a little bit about China more generally. You said you want to separate that from your overall thoughts on China. What are your overall thoughts on China? See,
2: now, Evergrande, I think, is a bigger deal for China, and it might fit into the to the larger whole. And what I mean by that is clearly the Chinese economy is slowing. I would argue that the Chinese population has been showing discontent about their situation over the last 18 months, being in brutal lockdowns to get rid of the virus, having their economy fits and starts. And it's been very, very difficult for them. And in the process, I think that the Chinese government has responded with widespread crackdowns. Whether it's been the Jack Ma and uh, and financial, AliPay, DD, the uh, after school tutoring uh, programs, uh, and all everything else that's come down the line, the the Macau casinos earlier this week, and now Mm -hmm. Evergrande, I think that all of this has been a reaction to the slowdown in the economy. And what do I think it is? Look, they're going to have to bail out these companies. They're going to have to bail out Evergrande. They're going to have to bail out the 300 billion U.S. or so of lens loans that they had. But what they don't want the population seeing is the rich privileged in China get to screw up, and they get to stay rich privileged, and you don't. Mm. So they've been really hammering them. Why do you think I think they did Macau? Because what did rich privileged do? They go to Macau and they gamble like a bunch of drunken sailors. We're not going (sighs) to let them do that anymore as well. So every point you see the Chinese economy is slowing And I think what Evergrande is telling us is more of that, that China has an issue here, not so much Western capital markets. Now, maybe there's a knock-on effect that if China is slowing down hard and it causes problems, say, with the supply chains or something else, that, yes, it could then metastasize itself back to the problem for the West, but not Mm -hmm. a direct financial problem with default on Evergrande. That
1: would be my take. And you know, you talk about it. China has been slowing down. You know, Chinese retail sales, uh, Chinese growth rates—all of those things have been showing some significant signs of a slowdown. And when you talk about global growth, China is really what leads that. So, you know, just to kind of piggyback on what you said right there—is this or should this? You know, you you talked about maybe Evergrande itself not a huge concern, but what it represents—you know—that slowdown that the Chinese authorities are trying to. Attack or trying to, you know, hit in a way where it doesn't look like they're bailing out the rich, which was kind of the the issue with Lehman, right? So what right. does that tell you about the economy broadly in the global economy?
2: The global economy, I do think, is 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 definitely showing signs of strain. Um, we talk we being the the larger whole of the financial markets. We talk a lot about the the global supply chain issues, and we somewhat dismiss it as being transitory. Except Mm -hmm. if you look at the measures of the global supply chain, it's worse today than it's been at any point this year. It's not being transitory. It's actually worsening as we go forward. Part of that reason might be China is slowing as well, too. IHS Market came out today and slashed their global auto production numbers by 6% for 2021 and 9% for 2022. These are big numbers to say nearly a tenth of global auto production is going to disappear next year, and they blamed it on the chip shortage. So what did they just tell Mm -hmm. me? The chip shortage is going to go on for at least another 18 months. That's not transitory as well, too. So when you sum it up, what's going on in China and the struggles in China, I think that can be an issue if you're waiting for the global supply chain to kind of heal itself, and you're waiting for inflation and higher prices to show their transitory nature, that could be very slow. Let me put it to you this way. A guy I was talking to that's very well versed in the global supply chain was suggesting to me, he said, he said, I'll tell you what I'm doing about the global supply chain. I'm telling my wife to go out and buy Christmas presents right now, because I want to make sure mm. that everybody that we want to send, all the kids and all the relatives that want Christmas presents, we want to make sure that we can get them for them. I was like, wow, that's yeah. quite a statement
1: as well. <laughs> do, you, do you? I guess he thinks the economy is going to need more help now, here we are in September, moving into October, than it will in that November-December period, which is, is interesting. I want to point it again. We are taking your questions right now on Real Vision's The Exchange. Uh, please submit them there. We've got a couple questions coming in from Tunkar. Uh, he asks, which is more critical for the market, Evergrande or FOMC? I think I can guess what you're going to say, Jim. But he says the only solution is for the government to purchase Evergrande's housing project. What's your take? And then we've also yeah. got Ryan Schneeberger. Sorry, I'm going to I'm going to throw these both at okay. you, Jim. My apologies. Uh, he says, what is BlackRock's exposure to Evergrande? How much systemic risk could overflow to the U.S. in general? And what is the exposure to U.S. pensions? So just wanted to throw those to you at, the, at those to you, Jim.
2: Okay, so let me take the second one first. BlackRock's exposure to Evergrande. You pointed it out. The bonds are already in the 20s. They're already BlackRock has already realized the loss. It is not to come, it has already occurred. So whatever is the reaction in the market is already factored into Evergrande. These are not 80, these are not bonds trading at 80 that we anticipate will go to 10. They're already yeah. there right now. So that's why I say that you know, it's it's already filtered in the market uh, a, as well, too. But as far as the, the larger question about Evergrande or the FOMC, well, it depends on what we're talking about. If we're talking about the global economy, I think Evergrande as a symbol of Chinese slowdown is a bigger deal. If you're asking what's going to make the U.S. stock market wobble more, let me use the word wobble, I think it's definitely going to be the FOMC. And I think that really the FOMC, the meeting is next week. They're going to do nothing next week. Uh, is uh, you know the the Wall Street Journal already had a story by Nick Chimaros last week, which read like Jay Powell called him up and said to write a story that we're not going to taper until November, and he did. So we we don't expect the taper until November. So nothing's going to happen next week. We'll check in on the November second, third meeting uh, as well too. The real question becomes, if this Delta variant decline does not immediately produce good October uh, economic numbers, and we see a wobbling of the world economy, does the Fed then figure out a way to go to December? See, I think they will. I think that the Fed uh, will will taper unless they can talk themselves out of it. And they already talked themselves out of September because of one bad payroll report. And they've still got another six weeks to talk themselves out of November uh, as well, too. So... Will the Fed taper in November? Yes, maybe, unless they can push it off. That will matter more to financial markets than I think Evergrande will directly matter to Western markets.
1: Mm, very interesting. And you know, you set that up really well from me ask you about this tweet you sent out a couple of days ago. And you were saying that some economists are discussing the possibility that maybe the Fed raises rates first and then tapers later because- the tapering could actually be the more difficult part than the raising of the rates. Talk to me about that and just walk me through the thinking there. Yeah, so the assumption is that bond buying
2: is the unusual circumstance, which Ben Bernanke used to call unconventional policy. Now, we've been doing it for 14 years, so I don't know how much unconventional it's been at this point. And the assumption is that Pulling back on bond buying is going to be much easier than it would be to raise rates. But what happened in 2014? We had a taper tantrum. Why did we have a taper? Remember, they tapered then, too, or wanted to taper then, because the market freaked out about the idea that the Fed was going to stop buying bonds. In 2018, the Fed announced a reduction of the balance sheet, uh, so they went beyond just not buying anything to actually reducing the balance sheet. And they used the magic words, automatic pilot, and the market freaked out again. Uh, But throughout all the rate hikes, yeah, yeah, throughout all the rate hikes, markets were fine with that. And so what I was suggesting here is, if the Fed wants to do the easy thing, maybe the easy thing is rate rates not reduce $120 billion a month of bond buying. We just assume that's the easier thing to do. Uh, And so maybe what they need to do is start off by pulling back on accommodation, by doing the easy thing first, and that would be raising rates. Now that I've said that, let me be clear, Fed is not going to do that. The Fed is locked (laughs) in. They are locked in. They have already decided that they're going to taper first. But what I am suggesting is this might be a little bit more difficult than they think it's going to be because they think they're sweating about in 2023 or 2024, we're going to raise rates, and that's going to be the big deal. No, Maybe the big deal is coming in November. And that by the time we ever get to an economy that is recovered enough that you're going to start raising rates in two years, that might not be nearly the big deal that you think it is.
1: Interesting. And I want to go to another question from the exchange. Um, And this is, you know, you talk about the Fed, but there's another side to this, and that's uh, fiscal policy. Angela W. asks, Jim, are you concerned about the political debt ceiling shenanigans impacting markets in October?
2: Yes. And I'm going to tell you why I'm concerned about it. And One of the reasons I'm concerned about it is everybody else is not concerned about it. Uh, Let me me dive in or creep in carefully to the political aspects of this, and I'll just say this clinically without trying to inflame everybody's politics. President Biden's (laughs) approval rating is tanking, and it is tanking hard over the last two months. That covers COVID and the Afghanistan pullout, if you just want to know. But whatever the reason is, his approval rating is down. What is the immediate consequence of that? His $3.5 trillion spending program, Joe Manchin met with Biden yesterday in the White House and said he is not supporting it. Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, Joe Manchin is a Democrat senator from West Virginia. West Virginia voted 70% Republican, and he's a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And he's backing away from the spending pressure. Kirsten Cinema, a Democrat senator from Arizona, which is a purple state, is running around with a spreadsheet showing all of her friends how they're not gonna spend three and a half trillion. His program's done. And the reason it is, and no one in Washington wants to admit this, it's done because he's lost a tremendous amount of political capital because his approval rating's down. Now, if he can get his approval rating up, he can get his capital back. But I think Manchin and Cinemars, they're not waiting around to see if he can rebound. They're banning him. Remember now. They voted for $1,400 checks five months ago, but now they don't want to vote with him right now. So, if his political capital is down, then the debt ceiling fight is going to be that much more difficult to put down the pike. Because remember, the Democrats are in control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. They have the ability to raise the debt ceiling any way they want and whatever they want. They don't need any Republican support. Except if Biden is so weakened that you get people like Mansion and Cinema turning away from their big spending programs, and then the then their progressive wing will push back if they're not bold enough, there could be a real mm. mess on their hands. This is all of Democrat making. What fixes this? Biden gets his approval rating back up. Uh, I, you know whether he can or what the circumstance is, we'll see.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we saw that a little bit in this latest University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Report, right? Like it was up a little bit from last month, but still lower than it's been throughout the pandemic. And folks are saying, hey, things aren't going very well for me. And as we have, you know, the Fed potentially tapering starting in November, as you say, uh, the expiration of this enhanced unemployment uh, benefits for consumers, uh, folks, you know, we're seeing the personal savings rate drop this could really create something like a perfect storm. Is, is this something you're really worried about, Jim?
2: No, I'm not worried about that yet, but you're definitely on that road. Because remember, what is interesting about people being um, worried about the economy is, there's jobs for the taking right now. Uh, if you're, and I'm assuming, you know, you're unemployed, you were collecting $300 a week. Uh, you know, the antidote I use, I live in downtown Chicago, there's a Walgreens a block away, they still got the card table in front door there that you put your name on a list. They give you a gift certificate, a $100, $50 gift card, just to take an interview. They're that desperate for workers. So for mm. people that are getting unconcerned, look, you can walk down to my Walgreens and you could start this afternoon. And they're paying like 16 bucks an hour for people off the streets. And then you get a raise after three months uh, as well, too. So th- I think there's something more going on here than just cyclical econ- economics that, you know. People are worried about the economy or anything else. I've talked about this on the daily briefing before. I think the very nature of work has changed in the wake of the pandemic. People have worked yeah. from at home for a year and I think they like it. And I don't think they yeah. want to go back. And that's something hmm. that I think a lot of managers and executives are having a hard time getting their head around, that they have to rethink their office. They have to rethink the nature of work. They just want everybody back. They want to pretend it's 2019 and everybody else wants to go somewhere else but not to 2019. I think that's the bigger issue that we're seeing right yeah. now.
1: Yeah, yeah, that push and pull, right? Like the, you know, the CEOs and the managers, they really want 2019 back and and workers are saying, oh, no, "We we didn't really like 2019 that much. We want to do something different." I think that's definitely something you're seeing. Want a shift? Can I can I make one a... other
2: quick yeah, one? Absolutely, quick go ahead. comment? Remember that in a large office, the majority of workers are either administrative, support, or operations. The minority yep. of workers are executives and managers. The executives and managers love the office that was structured for them. They want to go back. But operations, administrators, and support, hey, I've been working in front of my computer for a year. I think this is great. Uh, I like the flexibility. Maybe I'm moonlighting with a second job that you don't know about, yeah. or uh, or I can set my own hours or whatever it happens to be. I don't have to ride the stinky train. And let's just, I just, just leave me at home. That's the push pull that we have to kind of battle against.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I guess I want to shift gears a little bit and just talk a little crypto, Jim, because that's a space that I think has gotten more. Uh, more eyes on it right now and gotten more attention. Uh, you know, we yesterday on the Real Vision Daily Briefing, I was with Ash Bennington, he had just come back from Salt and he said that a lot of these big hedge fund managers manage billions of dollars, all they could talk about was crypto. And they weren't ready to come out and say, you know, I'm a buyer, I've got this much Bitcoin, I'm, I'm hodling or, you know, I'm an Ethereum, but behind closed doors and some of these off the record meetings, that was all anyone wanted to talk about what are your thoughts right now about where we are at this moment in crypto and and how you know the bitcoin the ethereum the, the litecoin the crypto landscape looks going forward from here so let me talk big picture for a second i completely
2: see what ash saw at at the salt conference too a year ago when i was talking about crypto it, the, the traditional financial people thought that I'd lost my mind. That I'm talking about useless magic beans on the internet, and that that's not something that you know serious people consider. That's no longer the case. Everybody is considering it. Everybody is considering it, and they're trying to get their head around it. They're trying to figure out how to invest in it. Now, the traditional financial people's struggle is, do I just buy? tokens or do I invest in protocols? Well, investing in protocols is really hard if you don't have any experience in it, if you don't have any expertise in it. And buying tokens seems so pedestrian. You know, Anybody can do that, right? But they want to try and do something more than that. And that's the struggle. But the bigger point is they're all definitely looking towards it. What's my takeaway from this? I think they all see what I think I see and a lot of other people see. This is the future. This is the future and it's coming one way or the other. It's either going to come with the regulators and the large financial institutions helping to bring it along, or it's going to be forced on them, and it's going to be ugly and messy. The early line now Mm. looks like it's going to have to be forced on them because they're fighting it at every step of the way. And I think it's being led by Janet Yellen at the the Treasury Department that Mm. she doesn't understand it, and she wants it to be killed off, and that they are- pushing back hard with all these regulatory uh, restrictions and everything else. And let me be more specific on you. Every time I read about regulations and every comment I hear, they always come back to this magic word that they say all the time. And that's Diem. Diem is the stable coin Mm -hmm. that Facebook is supposed to unroll. It doesn't exist. It scares the hell out of them. Because when you've got an active user user base of 3 billion people and you bring in your own stablecoin unit of account currency that you can trade, then Facebook stops being a company and it starts being a sovereign nation. And that's what scares them to death. And that's what they're pushing back hard on. But like I said, it's going to happen one way or the other. It's either going to be ugly or it's going to be smooth. But it's going to happen along the way. And I think that a a lot of private investors are coming to that realization, this might be the internet in 1994 or 1995, and it's still not ready for primetime today. But I see mm-hmm. where this is going. And I see where we're going to be in five years or 10 years or 15 years. And I got to get yeah. involved in this space. I got to not pretend that it's magic beans anymore.
1: Yeah, it, that that definitely does seem like where we are, and certainly with SEC Chair Gary Gensler saying, you know, the the organization needs more resources, particularly for this. And as you talked about, Secretary Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen putting more of you know her words and talking more about Bitcoin in the crypto space, I think it's clear. That, that this is becoming more and more important in the world of finance. Uh, Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research, I want to thank you for being with us today on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Thanks so much, man, and for providing this great insight. Thank you. And I want to thank all of you out there as well for tuning in and watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Have a great weekend. We will be back here on Monday. In the meantime, be sure and stick with us on the Exchange Real Vision social platform. That's where you can drop questions and all of that. You can also check out that interview with Real Vision CEO Rao Powell and James Aitken of Aitken Advisors. See the full interview there. And of course, our crypto event was held today that's available to all real vision essential pro and plus subscribers so thanks for being with us that's going to do it for the real vision daily briefing today for Jim, for jim bianco i'm dion ruboen thanks again for being with us